So years ago, I had this, um, this car that I took to a track. I raced it a couple times at Shannonville Speedway. And uh, the car had to be what you call track ready. You know, it had to be worthy of the racetrack. So it had tires that got put on it that were track ready. Brakes were track ready. The fluid in the brake lines were track ready. The brake lines themselves were track ready. The suspension was track ready. And there was a lot of work that had to be done. And I didn't do any of the work because I couldn't do any of the work. Somebody else had to do all the work to make it worthy. And, uh, but then I had to get in it, and I had to work out the implications you know, on the track. I had nothing to do, I had no contribution to making this thing ready, but I had to get behind the wheel and, and work the whole thing out. And our, our text for today is Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading at verse 5, I'm going to go to verse 18 as we work our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, this is a passage where Paul has a really interesting charge to the church. It's a familiar passage if you've been in church for a while. If you're new to church or you're uh, new to the scriptures, this might be new to you. But Paul's going to give the church this charge. We're about to read it. And he's going to say, work out your salvation. How do you work something out if salvation is not something that we can achieve, which we can't? If salvation is a gift of God's grace, which it is. If salvation is the total and comprehensive work of Christ being completely sufficient. His perfect work apart from our work or our contribution. That is the gospel. If that's true, why would Paul then, therefore one resting in the radicality of this grace and work, say something to the church like, work out your salvation? Well, this is what we're going to uh, look at this morning. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count, it equal, didn't count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he took the form of a servant, and he was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering among the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Working out this salvation, this great gift. We didn't do anything to earn it. We are on the receiving end of it. And then Paul says we're to work it out. What can this mean? Well, this passage is uh, what we call, it's an imperative, it's a, it's a command, it's a call, right? Kids, if you look down in your notes, I talk about this a little bit, where an, an imperative is something that you're supposed to do. 
But, but the imperatives of Scripture, the things you're supposed to do in Scripture, they flow from something called an indicative, which is not what you're supposed to do, but what the Bible says is true. So the, the Bible uh, says things that are true. Paul starts with something that is true and radical. And it's this poem about Jesus, which we just read, which says, even though he was equal with God, he didn't consider his deity something he needed to cling and grasp to. He laid it all down. He humbled himself. He came, he died, and God then therefore exalted him, right hand of the Father, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess Jesus as Lord, the name above every name. That's the indicative. That's the, hey, church, this is true. And because this is true, Flowing from that are, is the life of everything that the Christian is to do. This is, how, this is the only way we can understand the Bible. Otherwise, we're certainly going to uh, fall into all kinds of uh, ditches of legalism or lawlessness. So everything is flowing. Kids, if you look down to your notes, it, 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 we talk about this, that everything is flowing. Uh, what we do is flowing from what Christ has done. And so that's where Paul begins with that poem that, that, we, just, uh, that we just read there. And so if I was to summarize today's sermon and put it down into a statement, I'd say this. I would say that we've been saved by God's grace, therefore able to call him Father. And so by his grace, we now seek to resemble the Father. That's where this passage is is headed. In verse 12, Paul uses the phrase, work out your salvation, with a pretty striking descriptor. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we look at that and go, what's he saying here? Is Paul replacing the good news with very bad news? Good news. Jesus saved you. Bad news, life of fear and trembling now. Is that what's happening? Let's break this down, because if we don't understand this phrase, we're never going to understand the rest of it. In fact, if we don't break down this phrase, we're not even going to understand the rest of the letter to the Philippians. Because this is just the beginning of all the things that Paul, Paul starts calling the church into so they can rejoice. So he's not erasing the very good news with very bad news. That's not what he's doing. He is not telling the church that what God wants for them is to live in constant nervousness, anxiety, and doubt about where they stand. It's not even close. If you've, if you've ever observed an insecure leader or had the misfortune of, of having to work with a, a very insecure leader, they will use their authority to create a culture of fear and trembling as a means of control. If you've ever been in relationship with someone who is great, greatly insecure, they will, they will cause a culture of fear and trembling around them as a means of, of control. This is like the, the, the human version kind of, 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 of this. They're constantly trying to maintain their superiority by reminding you of your inferiority. And so when we read fear and trembling, and we've had experiences of people who create cultures of, or relationships of fear and trembling, we kind of impose that idea on God like God is now expecting us to walk out our salvation with that same kind of fear and trembling. It is absolutely not that. I'm going to break this down and help us understand uh, what Paul is uh, saying here. Because our God is not insecure, and he does not withhold his, his acceptance on the basis of your performance. Right? An insecure leader will withhold acceptance as a means of controlling you. God is not withholding his acceptance from you, waiting to see your performance. The gospel teaches us, and Paul just said it about Christ and what he did, that God gives you your acceptance before your performance, and apart from your performance, that's the gospel of grace. But Paul's not schizophrenic. He's not confused. So this means something actually quite rich, which we're going uh, to see as we unpack it here. So... Um, fear and trembling is a, it's a, it's a, it's a manner of speech. Fear and trembling is an idiom. We have them in English. So kids, if you say, 
I'm sick and tired of homework. You don't mean, I've got a slight touch of the flu and I'm also tired of homework. When you add sick to tired, you just mean, I'm really, really tired. Sick and tired. Adults say, I'm sick and tired of injustice. I'm sick and tired of oppression. I'm sick and tired of the things in my newsfeed that either make me angry or make me want to cry. I'm sick and tired. When we say sick and tired, we don't mean I'm running a bit of a fever and also this. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, fear and trembling in the Greek, the use of fear here is not phobia, like, oh, spiders, okay? (laughs) That was for you, Nigel. Um, It's not a phobia. Fear here is reverence, and trembling is awe and wonder. Paul says, Jesus Christ didn't even count his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, and he went to the cross, and he died like a common sinner. It was utterly humiliating. And then his name has been named above every name, and just as Christ rose, you will rise. And the implications of that mean you are now God's child. So work out the implications of that with a sense of real reverence and awe and wonder. Paul is not saying, hey, church, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. In other words, I'm inviting you to, you know, uh, a life of worry. Where do I stand with God? No, not a life of worry. A life of wonder. What has Christ done for me? And how do I now live in response to that of what I've been given? What will I do? How will I live? What will I think? What will come of these desires that are in my heart? The phrase is calling the church into awe and imitation of God, not a phobia of God. So what follows after that, if you read it, is a very important little sentence. He doesn't just say, church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, moving on. He goes, church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, work it out with reverence, awe, wonder at God's grace, For, very next verse, if you look at it, very next verse, for God wills to work in you. In other words, we work out what God is working in. He's working something in you, church, by his grace. God's in the rescue and renovation business. That's what he does. He's a reno expert. And God is constantly renovating things. And so, because he is by the power of his grace, because of of Christ's saving work in you, renovating you because he is doing that work we work it out in the same way that somebody else did all the work of setting up that car so that when i took it to the track i had to kind of work it out because it it, things are different if you take off street tires and put on racing tires and take off street brakes and put on racing brakes and take out street suspension and put on racing suspension it's not the same car Nothing about it is the same. It doesn't turn the same. It doesn't break the same. It doesn't accelerate the same. Nothing is the same. So you've got to work it out. What does it actually mean now to live like in light of all of these changes that I didn't do that were actually done for me? And this is Paul. Church, look at what Christ has done. The Christ poem in, in chapter 2 that I read about the equality of Christ and his humility. That, and you've got to keep that in your mind because that's, ce- that's the center of gravity for the letter of Philippians. Everything else Paul writes in the letter of Philippians, everything he commands the church to do is being sucked back into that epic poem about Jesus and his grace. And that's how we understand it. And so, God wills to work. Wills in the Greek, wills to work. Wills in the Greek means it 
It's not simply his desire. In here, the way the word will is being used in Greek, it's also his design. So God is willing to work in you. And the work in the Greek is uh, interesting. When you look at it, it looks like the word energy. It's, uh, and it's not energy, but it looks like energy because it's the idea of working. It's the idea of bringing something to, to, to fruition. They didn't have electricity when this was written, so they couldn't you know, write the word uh, electricity because it wasn't a thing. But uh, the word in the Greek for, for work is energeian, to energize, to accomplish, to display activity. So it's like Paul says, hey church, let's with a sense of real wonder and awe because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, let's work out the implications of that grace in our hearts and our minds. And as we're working out the implications of our hearts and our minds, we're not simply rolling up our sleeves, sole bootstraps, try harder on Monday, and renovate your own heart. How are you going to do that? I'd love to know. What Paul is saying is, by the power of the Spirit, God is doing a renovative work, and his energia, his energy, the Spirit of God that is in you, is doing this work of, of, of recalibration, this work of renewal, of refreshing. But this is what he's doing. God wills to do it. God is working it. So now we work out what he's working in. And so it's not a religious crack of the whip uh, for the church whatsoever. Think about the context again. Where is Paul writing this from? He's in a Roman prison. That's not a good situation. That's not a good scenario. But there is this, like, there's ridiculous pervasive joy in his heart when nothing in his life you know, by cultural standards, is working out. You know, when you're in prison, that's bad. This is where he is when he's writing this. He doesn't even know, when you read the letter, he doesn't even know if he's getting out. Like, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to live or I'm going to die. Like, they, they may execute me. So, like, his whole life is in the balance. He's like, I don't even know if I'm going to live till next week. But, you know, there's something that God is, like, working in me that is giving me this, like, pervasive sense of joy, um, that's just not fragile in circumstances. And I don't know, a person in here doesn't need that. This is the implications of the grace of God being worked out in our hearts and our life. So Paul is calling the church to this. So what does it look like on the ground? Everything that I'm saying. Like, you're like put it on the ground. What do we do on Monday? Paul gives it here. And what he says, and you look at verse 14, is he starts saying things like, work out your salvation with this great sense of awe and wonder. And don't, don't live a life of grumbling and complaining. What is that? Grumbling, grumbling and complaining. I mean, he's in prison, so he's, in, he's got a fantastic context, I think, for some grumbling and complaining. I think if there was a guy who could shake his fist at God and be like, I'm not sure you're that good, it would be Paul. And he's like, I'm preaching your message, I'm talking about Jesus, I'm testifying to you, and I'm in prison. Grumbling and complaining. Now, it, this, is, this is a little, this is deeper than just like, I don't really feel, you know, whining and it's not that. And the solution for the Christian, see, if I was to just take the sermon and be like, so church, because of God's great grace, let's not be grumblers and complainers. Then what you could do is this week coming, you'd be like, okay, family, let's all try to not grumble and complain. So then what you do is you just wouldn't verbally allow anything to come out of you, but you would actually still, by definition of what I'm about to reveal to you, be a grumbler and a complainer, and I'm going to show you why. Because the word grumbling in the Greek, and you're not interested in the word, and I can barely pronounce it, so I'm not going to bother. But the word grumbling in the Greek means secret. Uh, it means, uh, it means uh, what's, the, what, what's, what's the definition? Oh, yes, secret displeasure. So you don't have to act, so grumbling can look verbal, like, Hey, clean your room. I don't really want to clean my room. You know, you really, you should clean your room. 
you know, uh, because it looks like a, a you know, it looks like a, a clothing store and a, and a fast food joint had a baby, the baby exploded, and then the baby vomited all over itself. Please clean your room. And you can complain if your parents tell you to do that, but you know, you can also not verbally allow anything coming out of your mouth and basically be a grumbler by nature because you are living with secret displeasure. Adults, you know, for real, secret displeasure. Because if you are not a worshiper of God, you are a worshiper of something. This is the human condition. The human condition is that we are worshipers. So if I do not worship God, I am bound to grumble because I will live in secret displeasure. Because if you make your education after you graduate from university, you get your degree and you, and you get your career. If your career is your God and you wake up every day and live for that dream, you will, you will live in secret displeasure because either one, you won't be able to actually achieve that dream and therefore you're bound to be working at a job and doing a career that isn't really ultimately what you'd love to be doing, but you have to do it. So now you're, you're because that has become your God, you're going to be constantly drawn toward the, the secret displeasure, whether you let anybody in on it or not. You are, secret, you are secretly and inwardly displeasured because it's, you're worshiping something that's letting you down. Or you happen to... Cr- Get the career, get the job, create the business, the thing works out. But it's still your God, so you're still in secret displeasure because something is always threatening its success. Or if you're like a a Tom Brady and you're on your third Super Bowl ring and you've achieved everything, but you're still displeasured because you're like, there's got to be more than this. Or if it's not that and it's finances and and nice things living in, in southern Ontario... Either the finances that you're secretly worshipping are evading you, so you're constantly clamoring after it, or else you do have them, and now you're really secretly displeasured because every time you go and try and appease the displeasure by getting something, you've barely unwrapped it before you're online looking at the next thing. This is, can he, this is, our, this is our dilemma. Or if it's relationships, and you decide, I'm going to enjoy my singleness, I don't need relationships, too much trauma. Uh, good point, right? <laughs> Fair, right? Jesus was single, Paul was single, so being single is a fantastic way to live, and if you choose to do that, then that's fantastic. But if that becomes your God, if that sort of single freedom becomes your God, then that singleness will lead to displeasure, not because you're pining for marriage, but because every relationship now, whether it's your friends and hanging out, they have become your object of worship, and guaranteed human beings are going to let us down. No matter where we turn with this, or if, or if you are married with children or whatever, the secret displeasure, the grumbling. Paul says, look at what Christ has done. Church, we've got to work out the implications of this grace so that we're not grumblers. And the only way to not be grumbler is to have an object of worship that doesn't let us down. Complaining is the same thing. To live in complaint, so again, again if I go, go back to the Greek here, the complaint, it's not, it's not merely just saying, like, I'd prefer this to that. The idea of complaint, the way that it's being used here uh, in the Greek, is, is not merely, you know, he's not merely, Paul's not like, hey, cheer up, buttercup. Um, what's going on is uh, that the, the, the complaint is reasoning with yourself. It's self-based reasoning that's on a loop. A person who's living in complaint is stuck in their own prejudice. That's why they're a complainer. That's why you can't get through to someone who's... If somebody is living in a life of complaint, 
they've got a prejudice that they can't hang on to because whatever this thing is kind of because their identity or however there's so many things wrapped into it and so they're living in complaint because something's not lining up to the way the world should be and so they're on a loop and paul says what does it look like when the, the when the radicality of the grace of christ grips our hearts well now the ultimate thing that we're worshiping is Christ. We're now liberated and free to enjoy good things without making them ultimate things. And that removes this secret displeasure of constantly being let down by life. Constantly being let down. We live in a culture, you know, and, and uh, our culture has been this way for, for uh, generations. Where the, the pursuit of health and beauty is such a god to us as North Americans. But if all of your, ultimately, your hope is in help and in beauty, time itself is not on your side. You are in a slow trajectory, a slow trajectory toward dis- constant displeasure with yourself. And so Paul says, look at this, and let's, how does the gospel pull us out of this displeasure? How does it pull us out of our prejudices? How does it pull us out so that we can do it? And the interesting thing about uh, complaining, uh, the word that Paul chooses to use is the word uh, dialogisamon. I'll say that again. Listen to the beginning of it again. Dialogisamon. It sounds like the word dialogue. And it is a dialogue. But it's a dialogue with yourself. It's a dialogue with your own prejudice. So Paul says, hey, listen, don't get into the dialogisamon. The constant stuckness of worshiping something other than Jesus. It's destined to let us down. So he calls, calls the church into this. And then he says, live in a way that's blameless and innocent. Well, thankfully, Jesus is our blamelessness and Jesus is our innocence because we look at that and look in the mirror and go, that doesn't describe me. But what really, in the context of this whole phrase, Paul is saying, blameless and innocent means it's not mixed. He's saying, don't live mixed. Blameless and innocent. If you're blameless and innocent, means you're not mixed. It means purity. And if something's pure, in the context of what Paul is talking about here, he's like, hey, the Christian has been rescued by grace. Therefore, we're not mixed in our devotion, in our worship, right? I'm not mixed in my, like, yeah, I'm worshiping you, Jesus, but I'm also, really, my heart and my desires wrapped up in worshiping this thing. If I'm mixed, I'm destined for the, to the grumbling and the complaining in my soul. And then he goes on to describe uh, the generation that we've been saved out of. And he uses the phrase, he says, hey, listen, don't be the grumbling and complaining. Don't get into the, this mixedness of your worship amongst a... Uh, generation that is crooked and twisted. See that phrasing, crooked and twisted? It's interesting. Paul is not saying, church, you're so much better than them. Just don't even, don't stoop to their level. They're so crooked and twisted. No. Crooked and twisted, uh, again, if we kind of uh, unpack the, the original language, crooked and twisted means something's been dried out by the sun, and it gets twisted. It's totally dried out. I've got this, this deck, and if you look at all the wood on my deck, the wood is all twisted because it's been dried out by the sun. At one point it was straight, but because there's nothing hydrating it, it's now twisted. And Paul is saying there's a, there's a generation that's got dehydrated souls. And as a result of their souls being thoroughly dehydrated by trying to fill themselves on whatever it is, pick your poison, pick your idol, we can all be poked in all of our own idols, right? And, and, but what happens is we're, it's like drinking sand in the desert and we're dehydrated. This thing is not fulfilling us and we're therefore crooked and twisted. But you see, church, we, we were crooked and our souls were crooked and twisted. 
And then Christ comes by his great grace, apart from us, nothing that we did, and he rehydrates our souls with the goodness of his grace, of his salvation, with a new sense of identity and belonging as children of God, so that we don't have to try and locate our identity and curate it through anything else other than him, which gives us a stratospheric confidence in who we are before God, but also a, a beautiful humility because we were crooked and twisted, and we were saved out of our crooked and twistedness, and now we're called to be those who are now hydrated, you know, could get like super Pentecostal here, by the oil of the Holy Spirit, okay, super hydrated by the presence of God in a generation that's very dry, who we truly care for and love, but they're eating sand in the desert, and Paul says, listen, don't be mixed uh, be, be, be blameless and innocent. Christ is the blameless one. Christ is the innocent one. He has imputed his perfect blamelessness and innocence to us. So this is not a call for us to somehow avoid double jeopardy and, and pay for what Christ already paid for. No, it's done. But now we're called into this place of, of uh, enjoying this uh, rejuvenation of the Spirit. So when we consider the implications of all this, and if you consider that God is in the renovation business, which he is, and he saves us by grace, which he does. What are the odds? What are the odds that God would look into my desires and my thoughts and say, nothing here needs to be renovated. We're good here. Moving on to the next. Like, well, what are the odds of that? I think zero. I mean, what are, the, what are your odds? That a God who saves you in his great grace and now is working in you, which is what the text says. You work out what he's working in. So now he's working things in you. He's wanting to do renovation. And, you know, Susan and I and our kids, we're enjoying, some, we're enjoying the, um, having done some renovations. Well, I didn't do them. Again, inept. Not the great gospel analogy. Somebody else had to do the work for me. And I'm enjoying the renovation. But there was a, there was a period of time where we weren't enjoying the renovation. Because before there's beautiful renovation to be enjoyed, there's demolition and destruction. And when you start taking a sledgehammer to stuff, that's not fantastic. But you know, the ultimate end is so beautiful that when Paul says, church, you've got to work out. Like, work out the implications of this grace. The implications of God's grace through the guidance, the wisdom of his word, are likely at some point in your life going to come right up against something that you believe and hold to be truth. And God's word is going to challenge that. And something that you're like, no, it, it can't be right. Because after all, you know, the whole culture seems to be saying this particular thing is completely fine, whatever it may be. This particular way of relating to a situation or living my life, this particular ethic that I want to hang on to, or my way of viewing this, this particular thing, this is true, and anybody who doesn't believe this is, is a hateful bigot. And then God's word comes and completely contradicts this. What do we do with that? Well, you have two choices. You can either relate to everything like your God, or you can sit back and go, wait a second, I've got to work out the implications of this grace with a real sense of wonder and awe that God in his wisdom, his grace, is calling me now to, to rest in a renovation. But I'm having an uncomfortable moment because it really feels like the sledgehammer is out on my desires, or it really feels like my sledgehammer is out on my ideology. But God isn't some tyrant. He's a liberator. But if you choose to make the ideology of the culture your God, then you're going to have a tyrant. 
because the goodness of God's grace pulls us out of the crookedness, the twistedness. How, does, how, does a, how do the desires of my heart, your heart, and my mind, your mind, how do they get twisted and dehydrated it, from worshiping the wrong things? You see, humanity, worship, we worshiped our way into a problem. And the only way for our hearts to enjoy the renovation of God's grace is to worship our way back out of the problem, which is why God's great recalibrated grace is such a gift um, to us in this way. And so, and so uh, this is where God comes by his great grace and he rehydrates our souls. And so in verse 15, as the passage closes, it says that by God's grace, we shine as lights in the world who hold fast to the word of life. And we're not shining in lights of the world because we're better than the world. We, we, were, we, were, we were once those without God's grace. We're not better, we're forgiven. That creates beautiful humility in us for one another to work it out and also to work it out in our, in our city as we love and care for those. And so this process of working out our salvation with a sense of awe and reverence and wonder, it's a lifelong it's a lifelong ongoing work of allowing our thoughts and our desires to be reformed by God rather than living according to our own thoughts and our own desires like we're God. And so we bend our knee. It's not easy to bend your knee, but it's good news to bend your knee because God is a liberator. That's what he is. That's what he does. He wills to work, to do his great works, and he's given us his means of grace in order to do this. How is God working in you? He works, he works in you through his spirit, through his word, this word that we come and that we sit under and we allow it to reform us. He works through it through the gift of his spirit, through the gift of his word, through the gift of his table, through the gift of the gathering. Jesus says, come and gather. You gather around me. Every seven days, stop from all your work and think about the implications of my work for you, this great gift. Rest, eat and drink, get hydrated. Your soul needs to be hydrated. He gives us the ordinary bread, the ordinary cup, so that our souls can be nourished and rehydrated. Because what is the trajectory of the soul that isn't nourished in Christ? It gets crooked and twisted because it gets dried out. Because we chase some small little mini-messiah incapable of satisfying our souls. You know, Luther famously said that Christians are like beggars that have found bread. And as beggars that have found bread, who are we in the city but humble beggars showing the other beggars where the bread is? And so we aim to live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. And we do this with a sense of awe and reverence and dependency on his grace. Church, let us live in that glory and that wonder because Christ has done it all. Amen. Let's pray.